Uh, this evening we'll be in John 1, 29 through 34, Lord willing. John 1, 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Lord, there are certain truths when we come to your word that, that that are very hard for us as simple created people to plumb the depths of and to think through and to understand and Lord when it comes to you and all that you are as God coming down and taking upon yourself human flesh and saving us. It's, it's, it is both the heights and the depths of our knowledge. It strains our thinking, Lord, and if we didn't have it in revelation that you've given to us, it would be very, very hard to believe. And in that vein, Lord, I ask and pray that you would help us tonight as we look at this particular text and we try to think through what it is that you have revealed to John the Baptist and he in turn has revealed to his disciples and to us, Lord, about you coming and taking on flesh. We pray that you would clear our minds from distraction and may our hearts be focused and intent in emotional captivity to you and your truth, Lord. We pray, Lord, that with all the zeal that we can muster, that we would feel this text, think about this text, and these texts and these truths would become so real to us, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to clip through this. Frankly, I have seven points here from this text, and it's a daunting task. I was talking to Joel earlier. We could frankly be in this one little text the next two months easy, easy two months just in this little short passage right here. We're not going to do that. It might end up being two weeks. We'll see. 
but I'm going to do my best and give it the old college try to get through it. John is revealing Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, that is. John the Baptist was baptizing on the far side of the River Jordan, and people were coming out in droves into the desert, into the wilderness, to hear from him and be baptized by him. Jesus, before this story takes place that we're looking at, also went out and was baptized by John. And then from there, after he came out of those waters of baptism, went off into the wilderness somewhere. Wilderness doesn't mean like what we would think of, right? We think of Forest Ranch and Chester and Quincy and Greenville. We think of that's the wilderness. No, think of desert. Very, very arid, dry, bleak terrain. Jesus went there and he fasted for 40 days and then was tempted by Satan there in the wilderness. This takes place upon his return from being in the wilderness. So John the Baptist saw all of these wonderful things we're going to talk about. Jesus left and has been gone for 40 days. And John still at this point isn't revealing Jesus. This is the first public revelation of Jesus Christ being the Messiah who he was by John the Baptist's declaration. Remember we looked at last week, John's the, John the Baptist's ministry as Elijah was not one of performing miracles like Elijah did, but heralding something new coming in like Elijah did. Elijah was the first of those Old Testament prophets who spoke words of judgment. And he was, if we want to use modern vernacular, God's prosecuting attorney on the nation of Israel. And that would be the same office that all of the prophets following Elijah would hold. John is doing something similar in that he is bringing a word of prosecution on the nation of Israel and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and a means by which one exhibits their understanding of that and their acceptance of his judgment upon them is they're being baptized. And he will therefore then usher in Jesus Christ. Remember, John the Baptist performed no miracles. So he was different than Elijah in that respect, which is why he could have said of himself, like we saw last week, no, I'm not Elijah in that sense. Instead, he was the one to come and make the path straight for the way of the Lord. Now Jesus is coming after his temptation, and this is the words that John the Baptist gives us about Jesus. Now, this is John the Baptist's revelation of Jesus, and he gives us seven crystal clear things that he says about Jesus. Now, these seven things we're going to find are not comprehensive of Jesus, but they're certainly a massive place to begin from in terms of the rest of the Gospel of John, in terms of who Jesus is. So let's begin. Verse 29, Jesus is coming towards John after his temptation, and, sa and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first thing 
John says of Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God. Now, this has massive theological implications for the nation of Israel. The Lamb of God was a phrase that we find all throughout, punctuated throughout the Old Testament. It comes up very, very, very early on. We find in the pages of Genesis, God commanding sacrifices to be made and lambs being offered there. In Genesis chapter 22, we have that wonderful passage of Abraham taking Isaac after he'd been commanded by God to sacrifice his son, his only son. And upon getting up onto the mountain, Isaac's kind of looking around and sees what's happening and says, okay, we have the fire, we have the wood, where's the sacrifice, dad? And he says, if you'll remember those famous words in Genesis 22, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And as he's about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord tells him to stop. And he looks and there is a ram, or we could say a sheep, a lamb, caught in the thickets by its horns. And he is what is substituted there for Isaac. Well, you go on to, through the Old Testament and you come to Exodus chapter 12. And you know that passage well. It's the great institution of the Passover event. And that Passover was given as the last of the plagues that came upon the nation of Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let the nation of Israel go and sacrifice out in the wilderness. And the Passover event was given so that it was, well, many things. But for our purpose here, it was a substitute. The lamb substituted the firstborn male in the house of whatever house had blood applied to the door. And that angel of death sent by God went through the entire nation of Israel. And if there was not sacrificial blood applied to the door of that household, the firstborn son of that household was killed by that angel. And so this concept of this Passover lamb, this sacrifice in place of another, is very common in Jewish thought and in Jewish heritage. In Isaiah chapter 53, you have that wonderful passage that talks about Christ. Well, we look back and we understand it's about Christ. The Jews in Jesus' day who read that passage in Isaiah 53 were very confused about what it meant. They did not take it like we do and what the New Testament takes it. Remember, we are privileged to have apostolic interpretation. So we can look back and see how did the apostles interpret this passage. In Isaiah 53, they interpreted it in light of Christ. The Jews in John's day didn't. They saw it as a metaphor for the nation of Israel suffering through all of the things that they went through. Exile, suffering at the hands of the Lord, suffering at the hands of other nations, anti-Semitic you know, actions from other nations around them and the like like that. So you have this concept of the lamb who's going to take away sins all throughout the Old Testament. And John here is not picking out one of those elements. He's taking them all. And he's saying, the lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And he's wanting, I think, anybody who's Jewish to be listening to him to be having in their mind all of those events of lambs being sacrificed, sheep being sacrificed, pointing forward to this one person, Jesus Christ, who isn't just covering sins, who isn't just sacrificing in the sense that you can continue breathing, but even more than that, he is actually redeeming people from the judgment of God. Now we see this in several places. Let's just look at, uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to worry about time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, your boasting isn't good. Now you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore cleanse out that old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the festival. Not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul writes and he says, because Christ has been sacrificed as a Passover lamb for us, therefore we should come with great celebration and great joy, not continuing to live in sin and unholiness, but rather with sincerity and truth in the face of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, we find many, many, many pictures of Jesus being the lamb who was slain. In chapter 5, the lamb who was slain is given the great scroll that no person could open, which some say it's the title deed to the earth. I think it's more than that. I think it's much, much more than that. I think it's the establishing and the redemption of a covenant people, and it's the illustration of the covenant that God made with his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. Christ secures that covenant, and that document is now his. And he is the one who is the owner because he is the one of the purchaser. He's the one of the guarantor of that new covenant. And he with new covenant glory is the one who takes that scroll and is therefore worshipped as the Lamb of God who is slain, who takes away the sins of the world. I would direct you to our own confession of faith, the 1689, chapter 8, verses, or pardon me, paragraphs 4 and paragraphs 5 for more of reading into this. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful summary of what we're looking at here in the Lamb of God. But this Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Number one, first thing that I want to point out is here at the end, it says the word world. And lots of people get hung up on this particular word world. John is very famous for using the word world in numerous different ways. We've already talked a little bit about this, but this is one of these contexts where it helps to look at it in context. He takes away the sin of the world. Now, notice here, he's not talking about necessarily the objects of the atonement. He's talking about the extent of the atonement, okay? He's not talking about the objects. No one should understand, he's saying, the Lamb of God who is literally redeeming every single person who ever lived on the entire face of the world. 
right? There's almost nobody who takes that. There's universalist churches, sure, but they're weird and hardly anybody goes there. Because <laughs> they're bizarre and they're weird. And it's clearly not what he's getting at here. Especially in light of verse 4, when, he, when John the Baptist says, The purpose I came baptizing with water is that he, Christ, might be revealed to Israel. You see, Israel had a, almost no concept of the Messiah coming and having an influence on the entire world other than him being a very military, political strength that would establish a Jewish empire on the face of the globe. That's what they were looking for. And John's words, behold the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sin of the world, is an acknowledgement that he is indeed coming to affect the world, but not politically, not militarily, but he's coming spiritually. And he came to Israel to demonstrate to Israel the focus of God's old covenant attention, that God's attention was not exclusively on them in terms of redemption, but it was in terms of the whole world. Following me? So it isn't about the extent, pardon me, the objects of the atonement, meaning individual peoples, but the extent of it, that now God is no longer redemptively focused, as it were, on this one small little nation in the world, but rather his extent was now global, and the Lamb of God's purpose, Jesus Christ's purpose, was to bring this salvific influence message the sin being taken away to the entire world which is why again in revelation chapter 5 when people bow down and they worship the lamb of god who was slain there's people from every tribe tongue language and nation who are there he did exactly what john said he came to do and that's take away the sin of peoples from all over the entire world and israel was the first one to have that revealed to them. Secondly, takes away sins. Now, I would love to spend the rest of our time in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. (laughs) Believe me, I'm tempted to do that, but I do want to get through this a little further. But let's look at two other passages, and it's also with the same author, John. Look at 1 John with me. 1 John. Chapter 2, 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, Jesus, is the propitiation of, That's a fancy word for satisfaction or appeasement for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this particular passage again is pointed out. Well, here, Jesus Christ has taken everybody's sin away of everybody in the whole world. Well, that only works if you're going to be, again, a universalist. 
And nobody's going to do that. Well, there's very few who do that. And again, they're super weird. So John here, though, doesn't leave us hanging in misunderstanding because as you know, or you should know, and if you don't, this is something we're going to hammer over and over and over and over and over and over. When John writes, he's not writing linearly. When John writes in 1 John, when he does it in Revelation, he does it oftentimes in the Gospel of John. He writes very secular, and he keeps coming back around to the exact same arguments. And in the Gospel of John, it's Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. He begins the book with that and ends the book with that. And all the way through, he cycles through these stories, he cycles through these dialogues, and it always comes back to the same thing. Here in 1 John, it's very similar. In chapter 4, he comes back to this idea of propitiation. Look at 1 John 4 with me, beginning in verse, oh, let's start in verse um, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And so here, John's writing in the context of the church. And back in verse 9, he specifically talks about anyone who doesn't love God, does, or pardon me, doesn't love, doesn't love God. He goes on to talk about how that we need to love our brothers within the church. And if you can say you love God, then you ought to love your brothers. And if you don't love your brothers, then we have to question your love for God as well. But here, the apostle John here is saying that he was the propitiation for a specific group of people's sins. Now, the reason why I come here and I point this out is because we have a clear illustration for us of objects of the atonement, us. It's a specific group of people. Whereas in the first passage, you didn't really have that. You had an extent You had a wide casting of a net, as it were, and then he gets more specific as he goes through the book and cycles back around to the same concept. And as he cycles back around, rather than just continuing to refer to the extent, namely people from the whole world are going to be saved, he now gets specific and talks about who these objects of this wide-ranging atonement are, and it's the saved people within the church. This is why I come here, because I want you to see how John uses this word world and how he qualifies it later on. He does it throughout the book of John as well. So back to uh, John chapter 1. So don't let the word world trip you up. I've seen that many, many times with people where they just get fixated on that word world and no matter how much of this kind of explanation you give them, but it says world, but it says world, but it says world. And that's never the wisest way to read scripture. We want to read scripture in its context and allow it to tell us what it's saying, not for us to try to say what we think it ought to say, right? So he is there to take away the sins of the whole world, not just Israel, the whole world. Number one, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Number two, he ranks higher than John. Verse 30, 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Here's a man who ranks before me. This is an interesting concept because, and the reason why we want to point this out is because, well, several things. One, Jesus says later on of John the Baptist that John was the greatest man who had ever been born among women up to that particular point. So Jesus' own commentary on John the Baptist is that he is the greatest man. So for John to say Jesus is greater than John is saying something very important for us. Now, rank is something, you know, we, we have largely tried to, or kind of happened, and it's still kind of happening in some ways good, some ways bad, tried to remove certain classism from society. Now, there's an element of that that's always going to exist, and it's inevitable, right? It's just, it's just the way all cultures are everywhere at all times. There's never going to be equality. There's never going to be, but I'm not trying to get political, so don't hear me going there. It's not what I'm trying to do. But that's not simply what's going to happen. But we, because of the culture that we live in, we, we, we don't rank people the same way that they would have in biblical times. In fact, I don't like people who come across as kind of cockier and think they're better than me, right? I, I'm like, I get a little salty about that, right? And I'll, I'll kind of, I'm a jerk, I'll, I'll admit it. It's probably a point of pride, and I know that I need to repent of this often, but I'll still flex my chest. You know what I mean? I'll still, I'll still give somebody something right back. And sometimes it's not the best thing to do, but I'll get chippy with somebody if I think they're getting chippy with me. And that's my own sin. But anyways, that has nothing to do with this. Why'd I go there? Whoa, I know why I went there. Because John is saying that Jesus ranks higher than him. When in that society people would not have seen Jesus as higher in rank than John for two reasons. Number one, simply, John was born first. John was born first. Now, in our culture, we admire youth, and youth seems to have the gravitas, you know, all the demographics, you know, when people are doing the Nelson ratings and all that kind of stuff, they want to get this key 18 to 28-year-old demographic, right? They want those eyes to be on their products because they're the ones who are more likely going to be the most influenced and influential in society. Not so in biblical days. Older typically equaled better. Something we might want to go back to. (laughs) Older typically equated with wisdom and knowledge and experience Remember the book of Proverbs says that a crown of gray hair around a man's head is his glory, right? And one of those things that that's indicating is not just gray hair is cool to have, but there's wisdom that is up in that head that's crowned with gray hair. There's experience. You know, have you ever seen, I, I saw something on the, the, one of them social things that I go through where guys, not at our farmer's market, but at a farmer's market, set up a booth and it was just free advice from old guys. And they were just sitting around in chairs and you could go up to them and ask them questions and they'd give you advice based upon their life learning and their life wisdom. That's a good thing. 
That's something that's wanted. So John saying Jesus ranks higher than him would have been countercultural because Jesus was younger than him physically. Following me? The second thing is he's saying Jesus ranks higher than me is up to this point, John is on the radar of all the religious elites of the day. John is the one who's getting all the attention. John is the one who's getting all the eyeballs on him and getting all the airplay and people listening to him. So John, at least in the mind of the the cultural makeup of that immediate context, is the one who ranks higher than, frankly, just about anybody else. Why in the world would the religious elite in Jerusalem send their cronies all the way down to the middle of the desert to talk to this guy who's wearing goat hair and eating bugs. It's weird. What are you doing? Well, the reason why isn't just they were curiosity of his um, desire to eat bugs or something like that. It's because he was religiously the most influential guy on the scene. And they're like, are you saying you're the Christ? Remember last week? Are you saying you're the prophet? Are you saying you're Elijah? Who are you? And so for him to say Jesus ranks higher than me didn't compute in the mind of all the religious elites of the day either. So in both those ways, John should have in the eyes of the culture around him and was seen as higher. But Jesus is actually portrayed by John as being the one who is the higher rank. In Matthew chapter 22, there's this tasty little passage here at the very end of all of Jesus's questioning. Remember there when Jesus comes into the temple mount there on his passion week, he spends an entire day being questioned by the religious elites. And we have a portion of that for us in Matthew 22. Now Matthew 23 is after his questioning and nobody can continue to answer him. Matthew 23 is Jesus's condemnation on them. But at the end of Matthew 22, listen to this. Now, the Pharisees gathered together and Jesus now asked them a question, right? They've been quizzing him all day long. This is likened to the Old Testament where they examined the sacrificial animal to see if there was any spot or blemish. And Jesus endures this questioning, this quizzing, this probing, and he's found to be without any blemish. And so now Jesus asks them one last question here at the end of this chapter. He says, now what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, he's the son of David. So Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, you like that? inspiration calls him Lord saying Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet if David calls him Lord how is he his son now you following the argument David's the greatest king that Israel ever had absolutely without a question anybody would have said that so if David is the greatest king And the promise in 2 Samuel 7 is that the covenant Christ will come from King David. How can it be that this guy who was born so far after the great King David, David says, is actually his Lord? 
David says is actually greater than him. How can that be? Listen to what they say. Verse 46. You listening? They say nothing. There's no answer. Verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word. And from that day on, they didn't dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus, in Matthew 22, with this one illustration, answers what John is doing right here as well. Jesus not only ranks before John the Baptist, but King David himself called him Lord. You see, Jesus is greater than any other person we could ever find in all of the annals of biblical literature. He is the greatest of all beings. He's the Lamb of God who's sent to take away the sin of the world, and he's greater than John the Baptist and ranks before him. The third thing that John the Baptist says of him is that he was before me. There in that same verse, verse 30. He says, after me comes the man who ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus Christ has eternally existed. Jesus Christ has eternally existed. I, from time to time, have a regular habit of picking up um, a book on the attributes of God. One thing that many, many, many years ago that I learned from R.C. Sproul is when somebody was kind of questioning him about his ministry and asking him questions, trying to really discern what's the nitty and the gritty of what Ligonier's doing, is R.C. wanted to communicate who God is. Who God is. And he really believed that if people were confronted with who God is, then they would be compelled to listen to what God says. That's a compelling argument. It's a good case to make, and especially one who comes from a classical view of apologetics. But that aside, he said he wanted everyone to know who God is. And the reason why that still resonates with me today is because at that moment when he said that, I thought, I think I kind of know who God is. Why would you want to just keep bringing people back to who is God? And so it got me thinking, well, who, okay, what am I missing? If R.C. Sproul, who's arguably the greatest theologian of the last half of the last century, probably, if he says the most important thing is to know who God is, then maybe I don't know God as well as I do. And so it got me thinking, well, maybe I need to start reading books about God. And maybe I start need to think about passages about God. And so my regular habit has been since then that, you know, punctuated throughout everything else that I'm reading, try to pick up a book on the attributes of God. It might be about Christ himself. It might be about the Holy Spirit. It might be a book like The Existence and Attributes of God, you know, that big Stephen Charnock book. Right now I'm reading a book called None Greater and it's on the attributes of God and specifically I'm reading a chapter on eternity, interestingly enough. And the whole thing about eternity is just one of those mind-blowing things that gives perspective to everything else that God is. God is outside of time, meaning that he is not time. 
bound. We can't say of God he has always been because been implies a time-bound existence. We can't say he always was, he always is, because that still implies a measure of time. It is impossible to describe God's existence outside of those categories, frankly, because that's all we know is existence is those categories, right? I was born in 1973. I'm going to die sometime in the future, hopefully 2073 or further than that. I'd love to live more than 100 years and see my great-great-grandkids and all that kind of stuff. But who knows? The Lord knows. But I'm bound by it because I don't know. But God is not bound by that. We can say that he eternally is meaning that everything exists before him as an eternal present. So that's why there is no looking down the corridors of time to see who's going to believe in him or whatnot, because there is no that kind of thing in the eternity of God. He is always self-existent and purely existent in every scope of his being, who he is, and therefore there is no was, is, or will be with God. Now in Peter, he talks about the fact that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and as a thousand years is as a day. But there's so many things like that in the Bible that just strain our thinking, but it's the best we can do as people. And here, John the Baptist, he's doing, I think, the best he can. I think he's speaking kind of in a way like Caiaphas does in John chapter 11 when he says things that he's not completely understanding what he's saying. Remember Caiaphas there says it's better for one to die for the nation than for the whole nation to suffer and die. And he didn't realize he was speaking prophetically. We get that little commentary from John there in chapter 11. But it's something similar here. Listen, John the Baptist is saying Jesus existed eternally before him and that's why he ranks greater than him. How does John have that revelation of him? Up to this point, we don't have how. We don't know where he got that revelation. But he certainly has it because he says, Jesus existed before me. Look with me at John chapter 8. Actually, let's look at, yeah, let's look at John 8. John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, ha, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died, and you make your, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you haven't known him. I know him. 
If I were to say that I don't know him, then I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And you've seen father Abraham, huh? Jesus said in verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him because he was claiming to be God there. And he walked out of their midst. Well, this isn't the only place in the Gospel of John where he says something very similar. In chapter 17, Jesus prays and he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus has the eternal, existent Son of God. He has always been and he will always be. He is one who has come down and he has condescended and taken on human flesh voluntarily, something I might add none of us have ever done. (laughs) None of us chose to be born, but yet, pop, here we are. But Christ is the one who chose to come down and become a person. And he had glory with the Father even before the world existed, not just before John the Baptist existed, but before the entire world. Jesus has eternally existed, and this is one of the things that makes himself great. We're going to put a pin in this right here, because I have four more points. We'll get to them next week, Lord willing. But Jesus is our Lamb of God. He ranks higher than John, and he has eternally always existed and even if we were to just stop right here and move on to the rest of the book this is enough of a foundation to see how great and glorious Jesus is Jesus is the chief and best of all beings and it's why we can never ever ever exhaust the study and the contemplation and the worship that we should and ought to be giving to him Lord we thank you for the grace and mercy that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, how you are the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, that you are the greatest in rank of all people who have ever lived, and that you have eternally existed. And therefore, we can have absolute confidence in the redemption that we have in you, not because of anything in and of ourselves, but because of your eternality, God. Jesus, we love you. We praise you and we worship you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And in your name we pray, amen.